Hello listeners and welcome to Max Talks AI. Today is a truly special episode. It's super sentimental and super romantic for me for the following reason. The first ever episode of Max Talks AI podcast was actually a book review and the book was Humans 3.0 written by Peter Nowak. Um, you guessed it, today on the podcast uh, I have Peter with me and it has been a great pleasure to have him on the show. Peter and I talked about burgers, the future of voice technology, privacy and the skill of staying positive and optimistic. Peter Nowak has been writing about technology since 1997. For the record, your podcast host was two at that time. He is former staff reporter and editor at The Globe and Mail, National Post and Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Toronto and the New Zealand Herald in Auckland. In 2006, he was named Journalist of the Year by the Telecommunications User Association of New Zealand and in 2009, he won Canadian Advanced Technology Alliance Award for excellence in science and technology reporting. Peter's first book, Sex, Bombs and Burgers, How War, Porn and Fast Food Created Modern Technology as We Know It, spent several weeks on the Maclean's bestseller list in Canada. His second book, Humans 3.0, The Upgrading of the Species, has been published in five countries and translated in two languages. His work currently appears in The Globe and Mail, CBC and various other news outlets. He is also working on his third book, tentatively titled The Hero Gotham Needs, scheduled for publication spring 2020. And uh, we're going to get a bit into his new upcoming book that is not as much about technology and AI, but I promise you it's no less exciting. Guys, please, please, please accept my apologies in advance for a below average quality of this audio recording. Unfortunately, Peter and I were having some transatlantic difficulties with the software that I was using, so we ended up recording the whole episode in quick time. So please, prior to sending me angry emails and messages and telling me to get my audio together, uh, I'm sorry for this, it's not the worst, but it can be at times inconsistent. Either way, I hope you love this episode and I'll check back with you later. Have a good 40 or so minutes. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode of Max Talks AI Podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Peter. Uh, just a few quick admin things. If you would like to check out more of Peter's work, I think the best place would be his website, peternowak.ca. That's P-E-T-E-R-N-O-W-A-K dot C-A. Also, a good place to start would be to follow Peter Nowak on Twitter, and that's also at uh, Peter Nowak, Nowak with a W. And if for whatever reason you would like to check out what I'm up to, it is Max O. Klimenko on Instagram and Twitter, Max Klimenko on Facebook and YouTube. To give a listen to the previous episodes of Max Talks AI podcast, uh, you can go on maxtalksai.com and browse, or just have a look uh, into the app that you're using and you'll probably find the previous episodes there. As always, hope you have a smashing week. And uh, eat your burgers, but don't forget about the veggies, kids. Ciao. Hi, listeners, and welcome to Max Talks AI. Today, I'm joined by Peter Nowak. Hi, Peter. Hi, Max. And I would like to quickly jump in and uh, ask maybe a question that might put you off, but let's hope that it doesn't. You say that you're a professional burger eater <laughs> uh, in your Twitter handle. Yes, yes, and indeed. It kind of uh, it spurred my interest quite a bit. So if you could talk about why is it your favorite type of meal, or do you kind of go around and eat different burgers and then you kind of rate them as this 
Yeah, it, well, that's uh, it's mostly a joke. I'm not actually a professional burger eater. I don't actually get pay, paid to eat hamburgers. But uh, that goes back to when I was working on my first book, um, Sex Bombs and Burgers, which you know part was partially about fast food, uh, the fast food industry, and the the technological innovations that they've uh, created over the the years and decades. And um, you know, in researching that stuff, it um, often made me hungry for burgers. So I went out and ate a lot of burgers. And uh, I guess in the process, I kind of became a burger snob. And so now I, you know, I, I, I kind of go through waves. You know, there was a period of time, that was many years ago. I think that was back in 2010 when I was working on that book. And, um, <clears throat> you know, since then I've uh, kind of gone in waves as to my uh, love of burgers. Uh, I find obviously in the summer, in the summer is, is obviously a bigger time for eating burgers because I make them at home but uh that's pretty that's a very long answer as to why exactly I, I have that in my twitter bio <laughs> what do you think I think I've, I've I've gone through a similar thing with burgers and caesar salad so I would go into a restaurant and order one of the two what do you think about eating burgers in expensive restaurants um I don't know my level of burger snobbery is not quite at that level, I don't, you know, go to restaurants where I'll pay thirty dollars for a burger. Um, but it is, you know, I think I've kind of moved beyond the simple McDonald's or or Burger King level. It's funny because a few years ago we had, uh, I'm sure it's the same in the UK where in North America we had a real um, wave, I guess, of uh, what's it called? It's called uh, fast casual restaurants, which are not quite. The, the word escapes me. It's not quite luxury burger, but it's you know kind of like the, the step up. So the, the I think the chains that we are that are most important here are things like Five Guys. Um, oh yeah, Five Guys is big in the UK too. Yeah, so Five Guys has kind of been I think probably the most successful of that kind of uh, that fast casual level of burgers. Uh, those are the ones I find that I enjoy the most. Those are you know because yeah. they're very they're very basic American burgers, but done very very well. As opposed to the ones with, you know, truffles on them and <laughs> all kinds of uh, really luxurious ingredients. That's not, I don't, I, I can't say I quite like those. Yeah. I'm actually not sure about Canada, but here five guys have free peanuts. So yes. Yes, they do. Huge kind of peanuts. So yeah. And I, I find that's really funny too, because it's, again, I don't know what the UK is like, but in North America, you know, there's this, there's a sort of moral panic over peanut allergies. So, you know, you can't really... Yeah have peanuts in, in, in public places anymore. And Five Guys kind of just basically, you know, gives their middle finger to that and says, we have peanuts. We don't care who, who dies. <laughs> <laughs> Got a bit of a forbidden fruit. Yeah. Um, so uh, you might or might not know that the first episode of Max Talks AI was a review of your book, Human 3.0. I did. I watched some uh, of it, yes. Yes, and this is kind of when I realized that by myself, it's A, boring, uh, and B, Actually, there's no B. I realized that by myself it's really boring, so I decided to invite guests, and you were the first guest that I invited, and I'm super happy that you're finally on the podcast. Ah, yeah, well, it's good to be here. <laughs> um, I was looking at kind of different things to talk about, and I was going through the articles that you wrote, and what's one of the articles that I could really kind of relate to since I'm doing a podcast and that I think was really smart was the one the one on voice and Alexa and why businesses should be caring about Alexa and Google Assistant, etc. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting one. That was something I did recently um, here in Canada for the for the Globe and Mail, which is one of our, our basically our national newspaper. Um, the really interesting thing that's happening with these voice assistants is it it's uh, ooh, there's a lot of interesting things, I guess. You know, one of the I think probably one of the most interesting parts is the whole privacy side of it. You know, everybody's very concerned about having um, microphones that are always on in their homes. Uh, you know, the potential for abuse there is you don't you don't have to be very imaginative to see how that could uh, go wrong, but. You know, if you look at the upside of it, there's also a lot of uh, benefit that these voice assistants are delivering, which is, I think, probably explains why, you know, the uh, Echo speakers and the Google Home speakers are, are quite are so popular. They're really selling uh, very quickly. Um, but the way that they stand to change the Internet um, is, is, I think, probably the most interesting part of it, because when you do... You know, Google is has basically changed our lives, right? Obviously. So when you go and you do a Google search, let's say you're looking for the best hamburger around you, um, you do a search on your phone or on your desktop or on your laptop, and you'll get a page of results. And uh, I don't know how many are on that page. Maybe it's eight or nine or ten. If you don't like those, you can click onto the next page. Yeah. And you know, there's thousands of pages. Uh, I think probably very few people actually click click past the first page, but Nevertheless, you still have a bunch of choices there. When you are using one of these voice assistants to do the same kind of search, let's say you're you know, looking for a hamburger restaurant, uh, they typically only give you three, or I think Google Home gives you four. I believe Alexa gives you three, or I might have that backwards. But in any event, you've got three or four choices. So that really narrows down the, um, you know, how important the search is or how important it is for you as a business to be within those top three results. Uh, you're no longer on that first page, so you can't afford to be eighth or ninth or whatever. You have to be basically in the top three. Uh, so that's really gonna put a lot of pressure on businesses to make sure that they're uh, you know, even more even more so showing, showing up in those search algorithms and, and basically being recognized by Google and by Alexa, which I believe uses Bing, uh, Microsoft's Bing for its search results. So you gotta make sure you're in those top results or you're, you're kind of doomed. And what's interesting here is that, uh, according to some of those predictions out there, um, we're gonna, voice search is eventually going to make up the majority of searches uh, within the next few years. Um, I can't remember what the actual stat is now, but it's going to cross that fifty percent threshold rel relatively soon. Yeah, I think I think people are talking about forty percent now, uh, but I, I think I think it depends. But to to what you said, I actually tested it myself, and this is why I brought up this article as kind of the first talking point because I was getting a whiteboard, and right before getting the whiteboard, I got an Alexa, so I thought I'd just test it. So I said, um, Alexa, I want to buy a whiteboard. And then it just asked me, do you really want to buy it? And I said, yes. And then it just bought it. And uh, the whiteboard that it, that it bought was, was the one that was uh, recommended by Amazon, right? So that's kind of another pillar of how businesses, in my opinion, should be thinking about. Because then it's good if you are kind of top one, two, three. But then if you are also recommended by Amazon, which coincidentally or not was Amazon Basics, then to me, this kind of raises some competition points here. You know, I use uh, Alexa as a kind of search engine, and then it kind of spreads onto the brand of the good that I'm buying. What do you think about this? 
Yeah, that sounds to me uh, pretty blatantly anti-competitive, and I can't imagine it. Amazon's going to be able to get away with that for very long. Uh, and, yeah. it's, and it's not just the voice, too, right? This happens on uh, the website and on their apps. Um, you get a lot of Amazon, you know, because it's, it's kind of like the Amazon white label. It's like if you go to a grocery store, uh, most grocery stores have their own private white label goods. Um, but you know, in most cases they don't really push those, uh, more so than say like Heinz ketchup or whatever. You won't get your grocery store shoving their ketchup down your throat, which is effectively what Amazon is doing here. They're, they're basically giving pri priority to their own white label goods. Uh, I don't, there's, you know, so there's a bit of a nuance there, but I think if, if they're going too far with that, especially with the voice, I think that's pretty clearly anti-competitive and I'm sure somebody is going to uh, slap their wrist for that relatively soon. Got it. And, um, what you mentioned at the beginning, when you just started talking about, about voice and Alexa, you said that, uh, people are talking about the downside of it, yet there is the amazing kind of disproportionate upside. Could you kind of elaborate on that. What is the, the upside in the way you see it? Yeah, there's a lot of upsides. Um, you know, I have these things all over my house. So if this whole privacy nightmare comes to pass, I'm, I'm really, really screwed <laughs> because there's not a room in my house that isn't mic'd up. Um, but I mean, uh, for me, uh, I guess I'm kind of an early adopter and I'm using these, I'm using the voice assistants for pretty much everything these days. I have, um, I have of course smart, um, all kinds of smart home devices. So I have cameras, I have lights, I have, uh, I have robot vacuum cleaners and so on. It's in fact, it's kind of funny because when our, um, our internet cuts out uh, every now and then, and the last time or the first time this happened, I my wife and I were like, how do we turn the lights off? <laughs> we don't remember how to turn the lights off. Um, so that was kind of frightening. But um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, the benefits, uh, just, you know, simple home control, um, uh, asking uh, Google, I can't say those words because something's going to activate. Uh, <laughs> I turned off my Alexa before the <laughs> I ask it for information all the time. You know, what what time is the nearest uh, Costco open till? How, how do I get to, what are the, or how long does it take to get downtown? What's the traffic like? What's the weather like? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, these are all things, I mean, I could do them on my phone. I could do them on my computer, but they're, you know, just using the, the, the voice assistance is a lot. Uh, it's just very time saving. Uh, and then I, you know, I also use it on my phone when I'm driving. So there's, um, you know, there's clear benefits there. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, where do we even start? There's a lot, there's tons of benefits. There's tons, but I think most of them, this is kind of what I was trying to get to. Most of them kind of come down to time saving, right? Yeah. How much do you think now people, because to me, and this is my kind of subjective opinion, to me, people are ready to trade time for privacy. Right? Yeah. I think so. What, what, what do you think about this? I think so. I think you're right. I think to some extent that's true. Um, but of course, there's a limit. I think you you sort of run into limits on both sides of it. Does it, does it save you enough time that it's worth it? Uh, if it doesn't, then maybe not. And then at the same time, exactly how much of your privacy are you giving up? Um, so, you know, it's really interesting. I think I wrote about this in one of my books. I can't remember which one. I think it was Humans 3.0 that uh, privacy is there's the expectations of privacy, I think, have changed over time as well. And the, the, one of the, the key 
uh, points that I think I expanded on in the book was, you know, there's this tendency among older, the older generation to think that the younger generation especially doesn't really value privacy, but that has in, in studies proven to not be true at all. It, the young people do actually have a high value of privacy. It's just that they, what, where they place that privacy is the interesting part. So it's not necessarily that uh, there was a study done at the, I think it was the University of Ottawa, where they asked a bunch of kids, you know, they said, this was back in the days when Blackberries were, where everybody was using Blackberries. And they said, well, do you know that Blackberry owns the, uh, owns your messages, basically? And they can, if they really wanted to, they could look into your messages. And the kids were basically saying, yeah, well, we don't really care. We're not really afraid of Blackberry. We don't really think Blackberry's out to get us or going to do anything harmful to us. Who knows? They could be wrong. But the point, the point they were making was we use BlackBerry Messenger because it's, it's a texting option that is far more private to communicate with our friends as opposed to talking to them on the phone, which our parents will be listening in on, or they can hear us from the next room and so on. So the point is, is that they wanted to keep their communications private from their parents but they don't really care about the, the corporations that may be harvesting this data. So there is privacy. I think people still have privacy expectations. It's just that where it's, you know, who, who is seeing that information is the, is the important part. So anyways, it's a very long, uh, again, another long answer to your question, but I think people still do value privacy. And I think there is a limit to which they're willing to give it up to, uh, Google or Amazon or whoever, and it's just a case of how far do those companies go or what limits do they push and have they reached them yet? I don't think they have, at least not as yeah. far as Google and Amazon are concerned. Do you think in, in, in general, in kind of in a socio-cultural sense as a society, the fact that there is a, a, a good likelihood that somebody's watching, somebody's listening, we have the potential to become better in terms of you know, just our humane kind of characteristics and just become better people, not in kind of Orwellian sense, but more just in the sense of being more accountable mm -hmm. to ourselves and the world and be more aware of our actions. Yeah, that's, and that, uh, there's, I think there's a full chapter on that in Humans 3.0 about the, this panopticon. Uh, the panopticon is this old concept of kind of the all seeing eye that sees everything. Um, and it was uh, really an architectural term where it was used in building design, particularly in prisons, where you would have like a central guard tower and then you have all the cells basically open facing this guard tower so that whoever's in the guard tower could see into all of the cells and see what was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the, pen the panopticon concept. Uh, the practical uh, sense or application of this in the real world is that, uh, like you said, we're everybody's being watched, everybody's being surveilled. So the effect of that generally, and a lot of the studies that have been done in these kind of surveillance situations, especially in the UK, where you've got a lot of um, cameras and on street corners and so on, is that it tends to make uh, people more conservative. So there's, there's a plus and a minus to that. It makes them more conservative and less likely to engage in 
you know, bad activities, uh, crime or terrorism or even, you know, just uh, things like, you know, antisocial behavior in public. People don't behave that way or are less likely to behave that way when they know they're being watched. That's been uh, scientifically proven many, many times. The downside to that is, again, you it tends to make people more conservative. They're not uh, liberal uh, liberal activity or liberal opinions are not going to be as ex- expressed as readily. And when I say liberal, I don't. We're not talking necessarily politically. We're talking socially. Um, so you know, for example, in a in a very conservative society or one that's being watched very where everybody's being watched very closely, people who have radical opinions are less likely to voice them. Or, uh, you know, if they engage in radical activity, that's not necessarily criminal, or it could be criminal, even, you know, something like sexuality, for example, that's far more likely to be repressed and not voiced as, or voiced as loudly as you might when in a, in a place where you're not being watched quite so closely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see, I see what you, I see what you mean about this. It's just, I'm thinking about the, the overarching, I felt the overarching, kind of vibe uh, of your book and then of some of the interviews you did uh, was a sort of, I would say, techno-optimism and optimism in general and kind of positivity. And then you talk about, you know, for example, when there is something bad coming out in the media, then it's getting disproportionate attention compared to something good coming out uh, in the media. And we can see that with the voice apps, right? The voice assistants, the fact that it kind of imitates the human, and then we start talking about how maybe it can be dangerous, maybe people can be misled. And same thing happened with Alexa when it sent the random communication of a, a couple, I think, to their friends without the authorization of that couple. That was also kind of big topic in the news. Could you just comment on why are you staying, and how, rather, how are you staying so optimistic about the future and... Uh, for an average person, what should they think about, you know, the media and the news they're reading about, be it artificial intelligence or self-driving cars or anything else? And how do you shield that negativity and retain kind of the positive outlook? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, it's it's extremely hard to be positive to be optimistic, um, just because you know I think anybody who functions in the regular world and somebody who's, who's exposed to a lot of media. As, as I am as a journalist, and I'm sure as you are, it's very difficult to stay optimistic because it's uh, there's so much of it. It's just a fire hose, uh, just a fire hose. You know, if you go on Twitter, Twitter is just a nonstop fire hose of bad stuff happening, uh, bad reactions to things happening, even things that are good, even good things that are happening. You know, you're inevitably going to get thousands of people who are complaining about it for some reason or another. Um it is, yeah, so it is very difficult. Um, I think that the point of Humans 3.0, uh, I didn't have any sort of preconceived notions when I set out to write it. Um, and basically the premise of it was really, it, it was kind of, I think, of a, a fairly ambitious premise, which was let's try to gauge the overall effect of technology on people in the world. Has it made us better people? Has it made the world better? And I think when you look over a, a long enough timeline when you step back from everyday events and you look over the course of history, I think there is no question that it has made the world a better place. It has made people better people. Um, and again, you know, that's 
a, a lot more than you can break down into even a, a 40 minute podcast. But um, yeah, I think there's, there's so much evidence of it. There's, and, and this is the problem is that the news media is uh, unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, we are essentially the nervous system of the world. And I've talked about this before quite a bit is your nervous system never doesn't really tell you when everything's going right in your body. You know, you don't wake up and your nervous system doesn't report to your brain. Hey, guess what? You're everything's, everything's working fine today. (laughs) Nothing to be concerned about here. Your nervous system, you know, if you, you wake up in the morning and your knee hurts, that's your nervous system telling you, hey, something's wrong with your knee, right? Although, uh, I guess if everything hurts every day, <laughs> then, it, then it would let you know that everything's, something's fine. That's basically, yeah, that kind of seems to be what's going on with the world, right? Everything hurts every day. Uh, no, it's, yeah, that, so that's what the news media is here for. It is here to basically point out what's going wrong. And on occasion, it points out, you know, what's going right. Uh, but unfortunately there's so much more that's being pointed out that's going wrong is the, the, the very, the good stuff gets, uh, extremely lost in the shuffle and you don't remember it. I think probably as, as, as much as you remember all the negative stuff. So, you know, I, I go into some of those positives in, in the book, um, you know, poverty levels in the world are lower than they've ever been. Hunger levels are the lowest they've ever been. Uh, you know, diseases, the diseases that we're dying from, if you look at the top 10 causes of death in the world, according to the World Health Organization, um, you know, a hundred years ago, it was things like tuberculosis and, and these diseases that you just couldn't stop. Now it's, uh, car accidents is actually in the top 10. So these are very easily, well, not easily remedied things, but these are, uh, man-made problems. They're not, you know, these chronic, uh, chronic things that we just can't stop. So, uh, wars, I mean, the number of wars that we have now, the number of people dying is through the course of war is so minimal. It's never been this low. So, you know, it's all of these things, you put them all together and there's, there's literally no question that this is the best time in history to be alive. Again, you, you uh, juxtapose that against everyday news and it really doesn't feel that way. That's a different story. That's a totally different story. But, you know, that, that's not, uh, I guess it's not what we're, we're really talking about. So is the answer then perspective in a way? Answer to how to stay positive? Is it just to realize how good you actually have it and how bad it, it was you know, relatively recently. Yeah, I think so. And I think even just on a very personal level, on a very philosophical level, um, it's, it's very much the case of, you know, I've, I've been talking to a lot of people who are depressed lately and, you know, it's, it's very difficult to get out of depression, but, you know, I think the starting point is very clearly, um, you need to think about the things that you do have and the things that you have accomplished as opposed to the things that you don't have and that you haven't accomplished because yeah. those things can, can realistically can be infinite. So there is, if you are thinking that way, there is no, there is no winning in, you know, in that, by that measure. But if you do, if you do focus on those things that are good, and that you have, that you have, that you have accomplished, and so on. Um, I think it's a lot easier to be to stay positive if if that's the way you go about, you know, thinking about the world and your and your place in it. So it's kind of the way you say it is kind of also gratitude over kind of ac- expectation and the neediness, right? So you you would rather be thankful for, yeah, because then, yeah, you're very right. And also, you know, if you're in that 
mindset when you're looking for negatives you can kind of always find them no matter what so you will never win that argument with yourself which is essentially what a thought process is you kind of split yourself in two and then the two positions are argue. yeah that's exactly it and i think social media has really exacerbated that um, because it's very easy now to compare yourself against other people or to see what other people are doing and accomplishing yeah. as yeah. opposed to you know i was talking to a friend of mine who has teenage daughters <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> he said I think I wrote about this uh, a couple of years ago about how, you know, this, this, this uh, phenomenon of being able to measure yourself, you can literally measure your own popularity. You can look at, Hey, I've got this many Twitter followers versus that guy. He's got that many good God. What am I doing wrong? And so on. Right. And my friend was telling me, you know, it's, it's 10 times worse when you have teenagers because they, they really take that to heart and they can also go on Facebook and see, Oh, look, there's uh, my friends just posted photos from a party how come I wasn't invited to that party and so on yet? Yeah, so, yeah, it is. It's really made it um, easier to to really, you know, I think slip into that negative way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Is it? Do you think it's amplified by the fact uh, that our kind of social circle has been increasing exponentially? You know, if if we're talking, you know, a thousand, two thousand years ago, you would have a social circle of you know sixty to even <clears> twenty people, and then that's about it in terms of comparison. Yeah. Now the possibilities of comparison are pretty much limitless. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, there's also there, you know, there's a that's all on its own. That's a double-edged sword as well, um, because yeah, that's that's very much the downside of it. On the plus side, though, it is um, you know it, it has created this you know social media. The upside of, of it is that it's created this outlet, and it does connect people who never had a chance to connect before. You know, whether it's um, I can't think of a good example now, but, you know, it could be something like, uh, oh, well, I, I, the book I'm writing now, it's about um, real life superheroes, which is <laughs> people who dress up uh, like superheroes and go out and either fight, uh, excuse me, fight. I really, I really dig that, by the way. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's uh, that, That's a whole different uh, subject. But they go out and they fight crime or they go out and they help homeless people and so on. Uh, the internet, social media has really amplified and multiplied the number of people that do this because, you know, imagine uh, prior to the internet, you woke up one day and thought, you know, I'm going to dress up like Batman and go out and beat up criminals. Um, I, think... I did think that. <laughs> well, okay, maybe as a kid it's different, but if you did that as an adult, you might stop to think, or somebody at least might, you know, suggest to you, you know, you're, you're probably actually crazy for, for trying yeah. to think that. Uh, so now, you know, the first thing you do is you go and you Google that and you realize, holy crap, there's hundreds of people that are, that are actually doing this. Other people have had the same thought. So I'm not as crazy as I thought I was. Um, you know, that's an example of the connections that, you know, the internet and social media in particular have enabled. Um, that's maybe not the best example, but you know, it does, Facebook touts this ability to connect people. And to some extent there is something to that. Um, it's not completely, you know, their, their mission was what connecting the world or something like that. I don't think they're, I don't think they've gone anywhere close to that. And in fact, there's quite, quite the argument to be made that they are, have in fact divided the world more than they've connected it. But at the same time, you know, there are those social clubs and social groups that now people are connecting with uh, people all over the world that they just couldn't do that before. Yeah, um, actually, a bit, a bit off topic, maybe, but the the title of the book kind of inspired me to answer this question, to ask this question. Uh, the book is called "The Hero Gotham Needs." 
who's your favorite superhero if you have one? You uh, mean Batman or anyone in, in DC kind of? You mean uh, fictionally? <laughs> uh, yes, fictionally. <laughs> Actually, or non-fictionally, if it's uh, not confidential. Fiction. I think, uh, I don't know. I've never really thought about this much. I do read comic books, so I do like superheroes. Um, if I were to, I think probably since the movies really became a, a huge phenomenon, um, I used to hate Captain America, but I think I've, yeah. I've actually come to like him. I think he might actually be my favorite superhero. Um, and it's funny because when I was a kid and, and growing up in the 80s and I would read Captain America comics, I hated him because he just seemed this, you know, almost like a propaganda tool or this this propaganda symbol of of Americanness. And, and at the time, yeah, at the time it just, it, it didn't, it didn't work for me, but ever, you know, since I think in modern times, it's, he's flipped, he's become different. He's become, it's almost like Superman, you know, Superman is supposed to be this paragon of virtue, but for some reason, Captain America just seems to be a little more realistic. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm super fascinated by the work that Marvel's done on mainstreaming. If there is a word like that, the superhero, but that's, I mean, that's a topic for another podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, one topic I want to get into uh, is self-driving cars and I've noticed that you write quite a few articles on different aspects of self-driving cars technology and the and what basically is needed to get it to scale eventually and to get them on the streets and stuff like that could you just um, in your mind what is the most realistic uh, scenario and timeline if you have one for you know general adoption of self-driving cars uh, hmm. okay. So that's, that's a good question. I haven't, uh, I, I write about cars. I write about car technology a lot, uh, these days, which is, which is super useful by the way, <laughs> unpacking some of those. Yeah. It's helping me a lot. I, I had a... it, it, well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know about anywhere else, but here in Canada, it's funny because there's been a number of, uh, you know, it's a pretty small group of those of us who are technology journalists. So we see each other all the time. And it, a lot of us have actually shifted to writing more and more about cars because, and you know, not so much about iPhones or whatever. Uh, and I think that's just a product of cars is where the exciting technology is now happening. Um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty much very, I, I'm just a pretty much a, a very neutral reporter on this, on this particular stuff. I don't think I've done a lot of opinionating, to be honest with you about autonomous cars I, I haven't made any predictions and i don't know i honestly don't know if i know enough to make predictions mm -hmm. the with autonomous cars um i can say this much is what i've experienced so far is pretty astonishing and jaw-dropping and i think a lot of people out there still doubt it and that it's that it's going to happen but it's there's no doubt it's happening it's the technology is in fact here and it's and it's good it's actually pretty good it's just a question of uh, you know, car makers being allowed to put it on the roads. Uh, so I think it's the, the rules, the insurance, the regulations, all that stuff, that stuff has, is, is in the process of being sorted out. Um, so right now, I think in most countries, um, in Canada, probably, I think in the UK as well, I'm not positive, definitely in the US, the car, uh, self-driving, uh, we've got five levels to it, right? The level five being full, fully autonomous cars that don't need steering yeah. wheels. Uh, right now, I think what we have that's road legal is level two, which is basically being able to drive yourself on one lane in, on a highway without changing lanes and so on. And 
So that technology is here. It's uh, it's fully legal, and it's uh, depending on the car maker, it's great. Um, I was driving the Nissan Leaf a few weeks ago, or uh, not two months ago, I think, and even driving it on country roads where the the lane markings weren't the greatest. Uh, you're still not supposed to take your your hands off the steering wheel. I I don't think yeah. that's actually legal yet. Uh, you can for a few seconds, and then the car starts to scream at you. Um, but even having said that, it's the the self driving part of it. The it's it's really two two parts to it. The car is using cameras to see the lines on the side of the road and to basically keep itself centered in the lane, and then it's using radar uh, and cameras to detect the car in front of you. And so that it can keep its, uh, you know, a constant speed and a constant distance. So those two functions uh, together work, at least in the, in the Nissan Leaf, uh, they work fantastically. I was blown away by how well this car was doing. And this was several hours on country roads. So um, level three is coming next. That's where they're going to be able to switch uh, lanes. And I, not sure, I can't remember the exact timeline, but it might be even as soon some car makers might even be targeting next year, 2019 with that. I'm not positive. Um, so the, the thing with autonomy is, uh, I think this goes back to my first book, um, Sex Bombs and Burgers. I, I spoke with um, this general, former retired general, or he may have been an admiral, I can't remember, um, Navy admiral, and he was working for iRobot at the time. That's the company that makes the Roomba vacuum cleaners. And I just remember him saying, you know, automation comes in, uh, his term was on cat's feet, which is very lightly. Uh, it comes in one step at a time. And he was telling me about how in the Navy, their planes, uh, you know, they became, you know, almost every year they had just one more function added, one more function added that slowly but surely made them more autonomous to the point where modern jets today can largely fly themselves and land themselves and take off and so on. Um, so that's, you know, and I think the quote was something like, it's, it, it, it arrives on cat's feet, it's not the Terminator, it doesn't just show up out of the future. Um, so yeah. that, that's basically where we're heading with autonomous cars, is uh, every single year we've got new safety functions coming in, whether it's lane assist or, or blind spot detection or you know this adaptive cruise control and so on and so on. So slowly but surely we're getting there. And again, like I said, the next step, level three, is I think it's about a year or two away. Mm -hmm. How important do you think uh, culture is in adopting these technologies? Because to me, looking at what's happening with self-driving cars and kind of the hurdles and the you know very unfortunate and tragic uh, casualties and stuff like that, it's mm -hmm. just it's an example. It's a very early example of a technology that is you know inherently uh, you know disruptive uh, and brings kind of all kinds of short-term, um, how would I say it, short-term, not necessarily, I don't want to talk about loss of jobs too much, kind of short-term uncertainty, right, about what's going to happen. Yeah. So to me, apart from self-driving cars, there's going to be quite a few other technologies coming in and kind of medium-term challenging society in a similar way where the technology is already here, it is already safer, arguably, yet... The, the, the culture kind of prevents it from being adopted at scale. Mm -hmm. Just what do you think about the role of culture and how should a society be thinking about these technologies that are challenging so many things that we're so used to be doing? Yeah, um, you know, when it comes with, to driving, that's something that a lot of people love to do. And, you know, it's, there's, there's many people that will say, I will never get in a self-driving car. I, I love driving and so on and so on. And 
there's a lot of ways to deal with that. There's a lot of possibilities. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen? You know, the one, one option is, well, your cars can drive themselves. Uh, you know, there's, you'll have the option. You can have your car drive yourself, drive itself, or you can take over whenever you want. I don't think anybody likes driving in bumper to bumper traffic. Why wouldn't you set your car to drive itself at that point? Right. Um, there's also the thinking that, well, autonomous cars are going to be incredibly safer than human drivers. That's, I think that's, I think there's a lot of science out there that suggests that. And I think that's probably correct. Um, so there is the thinking that oh, those safety gains are only going to be realized when all cars are self-driving and following that stream of logic, maybe at some point it actually becomes illegal for humans to drive. Um, so a lot of this is, is really unwritten. I, one I anecdote I'll, I'll mention on that front, which I, <laughs> I think is kind of funny. I always tell everybody that what I want to do is I want to, I, I want to save up a bunch of money and buy this big plot of land in the country and then buy a whole bunch of old cars um, and just have this car, kind of car ranch where people will be able to come out and drive cars when it becomes illegal for them to do so anywhere else. Uh, <laughs> that's my get-rich-quick scheme. Hell of a business plan, yeah. long-term. Yeah, whether it comes to pass, who knows. But anyways, um, so yeah, there is definitely going to be a change of culture. But I, I think this is the exciting thing, and this is why so many um, journalists are, are moving towards covering cars, because there is the potential here for huge societal change. And I, you know, if, again, I'm an optimist, so I think we're going to have societal change for the better. There are inevitably going to be downsides. There's going to be side effects. And that's, you know, I think probably the main thing I talk about in Humans 3.0 is we hear so much about negative side effects of technologies, but we rarely hear about the positive effects. And inevitably, technology is never adopted unless the positive effects outweigh the negative side effects. Um, it, it's just not human nature to, you know, to adopt any sort of a technology that doesn't somehow make your life better. Um, and there's, there's examples out there where there's been crappy technologies and, and they don't, they don't do well. People don't buy them. They don't sell companies, go bankrupt and so on and so on. So, yeah, I think, um, I think self-driving cars are going to have a lot of benefits for society and they're going to improve, um, a lot of, a lot of problems that we have, uh, yeah. Got it. I, I agree. Uh, Pete, last question. A lot of my audience are young professional and students. Uh, and, you know, kind of this age, I feel like coming out of university or school, you can get kind of intimidated and very uncertain about what's going on in the world. On one side, there is the kind of conservative route that is still kind of mysteriously open to you. And then on the other side, there is all kinds of huge changes that you know you you hear about you know in five years this is going to go in 10 years that is going to go in 20 years everything you learned all the possible skills that you can acquire are going to be basically redundant Mm -hmm. to a to a person who is about to come into the world and who wants to contribute to the society at large what advice would you give how should they kind of be thinking about the best way of achieving that yeah right um i i think probably the key is to be flexible and to be open-minded um, I think that it is, uh, it, it's imperative to, to have that approach. Um, you know, what you think you might be doing, uh, you know, let's just say you're graduating from school now, you may have this, uh, you know, expectation of something that you're going to be, what you're going to be doing five years from now, but 
don't necessarily bet on it. Don't bet on it. Don't bank on it. And, you know, kind of go with the flow. It's chances are good. You probably won't be exactly where you want to be within five or 10 years of, of graduating, but that's not a bad thing. You know, if you're open to, um, you know, going where, wherever, uh, the opportunities present themselves, then who knows where you'll end up in. And it might be somewhere really cool. Uh, I don't know if that's good advice. <laughs> oh, that's really good. But yeah, it's uh, the, the other thing I'd suggest too is uh, I think it's, this is kind of almost cliche advice, but I think when you're, when you're just starting out in the world, when you're kind of in your early twenties, I think it's imperative to also travel um, to go different places, to, uh, to get a job in a different country. Um, you know that, I think that did wonders for me when I, when I did it, I lived in New Zealand for a year and a half. I lived in China for a year and uh, not only did that open my mind to, you know, being flexible and being open throughout the rest of my career, but that's also something I think that is, it's a timeless, um, not a skill, but it's a timeless thing, a timeless asset that you can have because I think employers really respect that. They respect that you are willing to take a chance and to take risks and to basically to try something new and take initiative and so on. So these are, those are my, those are my tips. <laughs> Tips from Peter. Um, all right. Lastly, where would you direct the audience? Where should they go find you? What's the best place to kind of check out the work that you're doing? I'm a little bit quiet these days because I'm working on on this book. Um, but you can find me on Twitter. I'm just Peter Nowak on Twitter. Um, I do the stuff I do do is I do quite a bit of stuff for the Globe and Mail. So there's you can go there. It's GlobeandMail.com, and uh, that's probably about it at at this point. Got it. And the book is coming out in a year and a half. Or yeah, that's uh, spring twenty twenty is the 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 target publication date. Um, yeah, so I'm I've got to have delivered about a year from now. <laughs> so I'm cranking away on it. All right. Well, I'm not I'm not gonna keep you from it. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, thanks for being on the show. All right. My pleasure. Thanks, Max. Thank you. All right.